Episode 2. Here we have Dr. Dana Renegy from Renegy from Sage College, and we're gonna, she's gonna share with us about herself and her knowledge in our field. So, Dr. Renegy, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you get into the ABA field? Sure. Um, I always wanted to go into psychology from when I was. A little kid, I wanted to be a psychologist, so I um, went to college at Queens College in New York, City University of New York, and I majored in psychology and really thought that I was headed down a path of um, doing talk therapy with people and uh, helping people to solve their, you know, day-to-day problems and things like that, and uh, I happened to um, take a an experimental psychology course, which was a requirement, and it wasn't something that I was looking forward to taking or, or wanted to take. But the topic of the course was um, behavior analysis. And so the experiments that we did in the course were things like shaping rat behavior and getting them to press levers and doing self-management projects where we were manipulating our own behavior. And it was really eye-opening to me um, about the science and and what it could do. And coincidentally, at the same time, I happened to start working in an after-school program for kids with autism. Also not something that I was thinking I would do for the rest of my life, but it it was just an opportunity to have a job and to help people while I was in college. And that was as I was learning about um, ABA from the inside out, you know, or the experimental piece of it, uh, I was also working with kids and applying it and meeting great people, and it just really changed the whole course of my career. So one thing that I always tell people is, you know, especially new students or people who are just getting into the field, don't think that you know where you're going because you don't. I did not see myself working with uh, people with disabilities, and I didn't see myself being interested in research, and here I am. And then one other thing that I didn't see myself ever wanting to do was to be a college professor, and here I am. So I, you know, um, have found that by being open and flexible and taking opportunities as they come, I've come to uh, really enjoy and come into contact with uh, opportunities that I, I didn't expect and wouldn't have sought out. Where I'm at presently is I am an assistant professor and I'm the department chair of the Center for Applied Behavior Analysis at the Sage Colleges. So that's a completely online department offering master's degree and certificate degree, uh, certificate program in applied behavior analysis to prepare people for BCBA certification. And I really love what I do. Uh, This job follows um, a long career of consulting in schools and consulting with families. And as much as I enjoyed that work, and I still do some of it, teaching and, and running this program really allows me to make an impact on such a much bigger scale than when I'm doing the, the consulting work. So consulting with a family, consulting with a school district is great because I'm seeing the immediate effects of, of what I'm doing. But teaching and graduating 60 students a year all over the world, I know that they're now going out there and getting certified and making a difference in such a much bigger way than one person could do alone. So that's my uh, history, where I'm at now, and sort of my philosophy all rolled up into one. That's great. You are making Skinner proud. <laughs> Skinner basically stole you from Freud. Imagine that. Imagine <laughs> what. So we just talked about Skinner. Can you give us a quote that I like to call the Skinnerian message? a quote that's ABA-related or ABA-inspired? 
well, the Skinner quote that I always come back to is, the pigeon is always right. And, you know, meaning that pigeons, and by extension people, behave the way they're supposed to behave. So if a, uh, a student, whether it's one of my graduate students or a student with autism, is behaving in a way that is causing difficulty for themselves or for others, we don't blame them for it. We look at the environment and we say, what is it that's supporting them um, in, in what they're doing and how do we change it? So that is the, that's the Skinner quote that I would say I have used above all else. And I think it's the most meaningful one for getting people to understand that it's, it, you know, behavior is related to the environment. It's not related to the organism. So to me, that's, that's freeing because it means that we can change things. To say that somebody, a child is bad or somebody is, you know, has a bad attitude or lousy personality, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, but if you say they're being who they are and doing what they should be doing given what's around them, well, then we can change what's around them and change what they're doing. That is so simple and so true. I was just talking to one of your students, and she said one of the most important advice you gave her was kind of look at things in there. What the person or what the animal could do, that's exactly what you just explained to me. And for us students and for some parents, that's very important to know, you know, just don't say bad attitude and you just have to think about why the kids behave certain way in what environment and all that so thank you so much um next i want to go see since uh let's see we can do this one when did you decided to get your bcba and do you remember the day you got it what did you do how did you celebrate how did you feel um i yeah i Got my BCBA at an interesting time. So um, I live in New York, and at the time, I'm trying to think of the history. The the well, it wasn't a BCBA at the time. It was a certified behavior analyst designation, but each state was doing it individually. So there was certification in Florida, and I'm not sure what other states also had certification, but there weren't many. And then they, New York had it. So at the t it was, it was the, there was nobody in New York that, that was certified, put it that way. It was brand new. Um, I did not at the time have my master's degree yet. I had, uh, I was in graduate school. I was doing my research. I had been working in the field, but I didn't have a master's. So, I sat for the associate level test. And if I remember correctly, and I, yes, I do, I had to travel to Pennsylvania to take the exam because New York wasn't set up for it yet. So I went to Pennsylvania and I took the exam and in the same room taking the BCBA exam was Richard Fox, Ooh. who was one of my heroes. I mean, he's, he's just like, you could learn so much from him reading his books and, and watching his movies and talking with him. He's an amazing person. And it was so profound to me that, um, you know, I was taking this test with him, <laughs> taking his version of the test. And, um, it was really, really meaningful to me. And, uh, after the exam, we celebrated by, not Richard Fox and I, but my husband and I celebrated by going to Hershey Park. And Ooh. then we drove home. Uh, and uh, my husband, Bobby Newman, is also a certified behavior analyst. At the time, he was certified from Florida. So because we didn't have a certification in New York yet, he went to Florida and got certified there to see what it was about and to, to have the designation. So we were... Um, we were both certified. I was at the associate level. He was at the full level. My certification number was 002, so I was one of the first two associate certified behavior analysts in New York. I never figured out who the other one was. 
Um, but then we had the first baby born to two certified behavior analysts in New York that we know of or anywhere. Ooh. And that was from Jerry Shook. He, he gave us that designation. Then when I finished my master's, um, I went and I took the BCBA exam. And I don't have a cool story for that. I, I don't remember it. I don't know where I took it. I took it somewhere in New York. I don't remember a thing about it. I passed it. And then we had, uh, after that board certification came into being, and um, then I became a BCBA. And that's, that's my story. And now you're BCBA-D, and wow. Would, do you think your firstborn would be going into the field? Do you, can you imagine? Do you think there's a chance? I- I think he could. I mean, I think he has a very good sense of um, a lot of the principles because, you know, we talk about things, of course, principles of reinforcement, the way you treat people and the way they'll react and um, talking about just his experiences in school, you know, when teachers yell at the whole class because one person is doing something wrong and what well, do you think that's a do you think that's good? Do you, why not? You know, what are the benefits and things? And he can, he can have a, a decent conversation about that. He goes to all the conferences with us, but I think like any kid, he's going to want to be different from his parents. So, um, I don't expect him to go into the family business, but if he does. He'll be well prepared. Oh, interesting. That would be our first ABA Royal family right here. So, <laughs> Talking about family, can you trace your ABA lineage? Do like, can you trace back to, I don't know, let's say, I like to say Skinner's Yoda. Can you trace back your roots? Um, well, I, I don't want to claim anybody too closely. Um, what I'll say is that I did my graduate work through CUNY, um, small program, City University of New York. My dissertation advisor, my mentor, is Nancy Hemis. Um, on my committee, I had Claire Paulson and um, Robert Lanson. And the interesting thing is that Claire Paulson is much more an applied person. She's connected with the Princeton Child Development Institute. Her roots go back to Don Baer. But she really wasn't my direct mentor. Um, Nancy Hemis and uh, Bob Lanson were uh, experimental people. So I couldn't even tell you, to be honest with you, who they studied under. I don't remember. Um, but I wouldn't really want to claim their background either because what they allowed me to do, which was, which was great, was to really create my own program and my own lab. So a lot of students joined particular labs and they did the research that was going on in those labs. So if you were joining Nancy Hemis's lab, it was timing research and um, rats and pigeons and some things with people, but it was very uh, basic research as opposed to Claire Paulson's lab, which was with infants and people with disabilities, and it was much more applied. What they allowed me to do was to create my own line of research and supported me in it. Uh, So I really benefited from everybody's perspective, and I feel like they gave me a great foundation that was both very uh, applied, and I, I was studying things that were meaningful in my work and and helping people with disabilities, but at the same time, I was doing it from a perspective that really strengthened my experimental skills and my understanding of the theories. So, you know, with with ABA, I think there's such a demand for it um, with the increase in autism and, and the needs of people that People get trained very quickly, and they, they don't get all that theory. They get how to do it, why to do it, what it means, and that's all great, and you can be a great clinician that way. But if you're going to teach other people about it or if you're going to 
innovate in any way, I think you have to have the history. I think you need to read those rat and pigeon studies and you need to know them and you need to understand the concepts and the principles from that level. So I got to do that stuff. I got to, I got to work with the rats and pigeons and I got to read the research and understand it and see it as it was translated and applied to people. And that to me was made my education. Um, it, I think my education made me very flexible where I've been able to have different kinds of jobs and apply what I know into different situations uh, and to be able to teach other people because I think I, I get it from the deepest, you know, uh, place that you can, that you can understand it. All coming back to the pigeons. Pigeons are cool. I mean, they, they're, they're so laid back, you know, when you, I don't know if you've ever worked with pigeons, but, uh, to transport them, they're in these cages and I, on a very personal level, I don't love animals being used in research. And pigeons have to be um, kept at a certain percentage of their free-feeding body weight so that they're motivated to eat. And I never felt comfortable with that. But they did not seem bothered by anything. When you, would, when you transport them from where they live to the experimental chamber, at least in the lab that I worked in, it was with a juice pitcher. It was a plastic juice pitcher. You hold it up to the cage. The pigeon jumps in head first voluntarily. And then you carry it over to the chamber and you tilt it and they back out. They do their thing. At the end, they jump back in and you put them back in the cage. And they were so cool. They, they didn't bite. They didn't, you know, I, I guess for some people, maybe saw them try to fly away or something, but I never had that. Rats, on the other hand, are not so friendly. And when I didn't do rat research myself, but when I taught um, at Queens College, when I was a graduate student, I, I worked as an adjunct and I had my students do rat work. And every semester, somebody would drop their rat. I would have to come in and chase the rat around the floor of the lab and pick it up. And every semester, I got bit. So if you give me a choice, I'll always pick the pigeons. Pigeons. I uh, when you say you put in a juice pitcher, I could how the pigeons just jump right into it. I couldn't even put my kid in the car seat without a fight. I love those pigeons. Well, I want to change the gear a little bit. I want to talk about something a little more personal. What um, I want to ask you: What was your biggest failure as a BCBA or as a therapist in the field? It doesn't have to be anything big just what you think was your biggest failure I think I would say I don't I don't know if I can come up with this one specific example like I don't have a particular um, client or or work situation or anything where I feel like I wish I could have done that differently but I would one thing that I wish I had I knew what I didn't know, you know, about back then was being sensitive to parents. Until I had a child of my own, I had no clue. And now I try to get that across to my students because I think as an early behavior analyst, as somebody who was very enthusiastic, I felt very strongly about what I was doing, um, I was very uh, concerned about my kids, my students. And so given the opportunity to provide parent training, I think I may have been harsh at times or demanding with the parents and not realized that I was working with these kids for a couple of hours a day and they were living with them 24-7. And I might be able to be completely consistent with something, but they might not. And I think I was... I always tried to be kind to the parents. I was always respectful. I never had a problem with a parent that I worked with. But I think I would, I think the mistake I made was not um, allowing them the, making them comfortable saying that's not something I can do and then working together to fix it, to adjust it. 
when I started to consult in schools, it became very clear to me that um, a big piece of being a behavior analyst is not coming up with the perfect plan and, and telling people to do it and then walking away. It's coming up with the perfect plan and then finding out where it's going to be difficult to implement that plan and then adjusting it in those places and then letting people use the plan for a while and seeing are they really able to do it or do we need to change it. So there's a lot of, um, you know, while, while we certainly want to do the best that we can and, and parents want to know what they need to do to do the best that they can for their children, I think everybody, parents and teachers and everybody needs not to be set up to fail by being, you know, by thinking that if they don't do it 100%, then they shouldn't do it at all. So this is a, it's something that I've come to, you know, learn over time and becoming a parent myself made a big difference in realizing how easy it is to be inconsistent, even when you know better. Um, but what's interesting is, uh, earlier this year, I, we have, we held a conference at Sage. We had, it was an on-site conference. And our keynote speaker was Dr. Bill Ahern from the New England Center for Children, who's, you know, another behavioral hero of mine. And he was presenting his research, and, and uh, the research was on the response interruption and redirection procedure, where if a student is, like, uh, engaging in verbal self-stimulation, you interrupt them and you ask them questions to redirect to appropriate speech. It's a very intensive intervention. You're supposed to do it every single time. And if you work with children with autism, you know that if they're if they have perseveration as a behavior problem, it could happen thousands of times a day. And Dr. Ahern was talking about this and talking about the data and, and how they had to have constant one-to-ones on these kids. But then they looked at it realistically and took data and found that even if the intervention wasn't done 100% of the time, it was still effective. And that was really meaningful to me as of just as of this year. I mean, being doing this work for so long and, and being pretty um, strong about being that consistency is absolutely necessary. Sometimes it may not be. And there may be things that we can teach people to do, parents or teachers or, or whoever needs to support other people, um, or even self-management that people can do for themselves, that can be and should be really uh, adapted to what they're, what they're capable of doing rather than you know, giving people, um, like I said before, setting them up to fail. I totally agree, especially uh, the parents one. I never thought of it. Now my goal, my my trick is to tell the parents that, you know, you did great. I couldn't do it with my own kid. You are my hero. I like to tell parents that I, when the kids have a tantrum, I like to tell them that, you know, you guys are doing it perfectly. Don't worry about, you know, being inconsistent. It's okay. You're doing a good job. I think that helped me connect with the parents a little bit I want them to know I'm on their team we're together and you know we all want the best for the kids so let's work on the behaviors tomorrow's a new day so thank you for sharing that I think it's important I think it you know you we're, we have to tell parents the the truth you know you you as a parent myself if my child needed help medical help or psychological help or behavioral help I would want to know what's the gold standard, like what's the best thing that we could do. If I, you know, if I can possibly do it, I want to do it. So I think that we owe parents that. I think we have to tell them this is this is the ideal. If you can do this, that that would be great. That would be the best. However, if you can't, then here's some alternatives. Here's some ways to build you up to that gold standard. Um, and if you, if you completely fail, you know, and you, you just one day, you just can't do it and you, you, you do everything wrong. It's like a diet. 
you know, you fall, if you, if you cheat on your diet, that doesn't mean that you need to go and eat everything else. So you had, you made a mistake. Now get back on the wagon. And like you said, tomorrow's a new day. So I think it's that balance between giving people complete information and making sure that they understand, you know, what they can do with that information to reasonably make it work in their lives. Cool. And on the other hand, what is your biggest success as a BCBA or just general in the field? What do you think? Uh, well, it depends on how you measure success, I guess. But I think the thing that I'm proudest of is a project that I've been involved with for the last few years at SAGE. Um, we started a completely online bachelor's program that's uh, designed to meet the needs of people with autism and other disabilities who wouldn't go to college if they had to go in a traditional setting. So I was um, having a, an informal conversation with someone at SAGE. At the time, it was the, it was the person who was the vice president at the time of SAGE. And uh, I just, we were talking about online teaching and all the benefits and things that uh, you can do online that you can't do in a traditional classroom. And, and I, it just popped into my head, like, I've, I've had... Uh, consultation cases of high school students with autism who kids who were very high functioning academically very capable did very well in school but socially and in terms of executive functioning and, and anxiety and those things they really um, struggled in school so while they had the academic ability all of the things about high school that make it difficult for everybody really impacted these students and they all said that they did not want to go to college and it was you know it always made me feel sad because they had so much potential and it as I was talking with this this person it, it I was thinking about it and it kind of came out of my mouth and I said it to her and she loved it and Sage the president loved it and everybody loved it and they they asked me to develop this program and it was um, such an honor to be given so much uh, latitude, you know, to create something like this, uh, teams of people to work with and, and you know, uh, project managers and instructional designers and program directors and, and all kinds of people. And to develop this program that's, that's running, it's been running for about a year now, and we have students who... You can, you can see clearly the impact that the program has had on them. Um, it's been so gratifying that all of the features, I, I brought in another behavior analyst, a very good friend of mine and colleague, Laura Stolfi, who also has a background as a special ed teacher to do this program with me. And she's the program director now, but we designed it together. All of the things that we came up with together as features that we put in there specifically to support students on the spectrum have worked. It's been, it's been one of those times where like every instinct was right. Every, you know, reference to the literature, everything that we took from our collective experience really panned out for these students. And I've had opportunities to share this program and, and tell other behavior analysts about it and show it to them, walk them through it. And the, the best feeling is when they point out to me all of the things that I take such pride in about the program and that they see as being uh, important and effective. And in addition to that, I've had the immense pleasure of having my own graduate students who have graduated and gotten their BCBAs working in this program. So all of the college students who have autism or, or other disabilities have one-to-one -one mentors who help them, um, uh, you know, three hours a week of just assisting them with whatever they need. If it's, you know, improving their writing skills or navigating the coursework or dealing with their professors or whatever they have to do. 
and the mentors are all graduates of my program. So it's been really nice to bring those two things together and to feel like I'm part of a solution to a problem that I had identified years ago for, um, for you know these students who are at a level where they really they really can they're so close to being able to function independently, but um, the resources are just not there for them, and this is hopefully filling a gap. That is wonderful, and I congratulate you on that. And with technology, things you we, we makes a lot of things possible. I started with early intervention, and one of my questions is always: so, when the kids grow up, what are they gonna do? And with technology and programs like the one you created, really, really give them a chance to thrive to live to their full potential and just it's wonderful to see them do such things and I really really thank you for that and guys I'm going to look it up if I'm going to post any show notes I would definitely link this so just hunt me down and make sure I do this thank you for that and since you know I like Star Wars I'm going to change to another topic, do you have an aha moment or in the feel that you know this is the thing I want to do? The what I like to call the forces with me moment that you think like yes, ABA is it. That's something you want to do for as your career, as your profession. Can you pinpoint that moment? Oh well, uh, I guess I mean it had to be. In my first experience working in this after-school program, um, I'm trying to think of, of if there was a moment or if it was just the the experience itself was so different than anything I had ever done before. Um, but it was really instantly captivating. Uh, there were the the group that I was assigned to work with um, were. I guess you would call them tweens at this point. They were probably like 10 to 12 years old. Uh, I had gone to training. It was not, you know, it, it, it made sense to me. It was um, it was consistent with what I was learning in school, things I had heard before. But it wasn't until I was in that classroom that first day with these actual children that I began to even conceive what we were doing with them or what the what I was going to be able to do with them or even the level of their disability. I, it's not like, I know a lot of people come into this field because they have experience with people with autism. You know, they have a family member or a neighbor or whatever. Um, I know my, like my graduate students, they all come to me with some background and experience. I had none at all whatsoever and this was this was I'll be really honest and say it was more than 20 years ago so this was before there there was all this increase in autism there it was not the relatively common thing that it is now and uh, I just I took the job because I was working at an office supply place at the time and it was really boring (laughs) (laughs) and uh, this opportunity came up and I thought well at least it's like a little closer to psychology and you know I like children so maybe it'll be fun and I went to this training and that was fine and then I went to the program the first day and there was these children um, a couple of them were in diapers even though they were they were almost teenagers and um, they none of them were verbal they did not have communication systems, they were aggressive, um, and they kind of, the the people who were supervising me said, okay, here's some potato chips, and here's some data sheets, teach them something, and, (laughs) okay, (laughs) and I tried, and I got hurt, I got scratched, you know, but I also got hugged, and um, it was... I think the first day, I think I went home, I was just stunned. Uh, but I couldn't wait to go back. And 
you know, over the years, the there's there's definite frustrations with the fields, but it's never with the kids themselves. It's with the people who make it hard to do what you need to do for them. Um, so I would say probably my aha moment was that that uh, that instruction of here, sit and teach them something, and just just do like starting to do it. Starting to interact, starting to deliver reinforcers. I, I'm, I'm sure I did it all wrong, uh, but then I got support and feedback and training, and and um, I did my first research project there. We it was my first publication. Um, I taught one of the kids how to hide things, which doesn't sound like a really good thing to teach them, but it was um, in the context of a game, you know teaching them perspective taking. And so I went from not knowing a thing about what I was doing to publishing research on, you know, uh, how to teach these children a very complex skill within about a year, year and a half. I remember that uh, one of my clients learned how to lie and everyone was just really, really excited. We high five each other and all that because the kid lie. It's not the greatest thing. I mean, like just in your case, it's not a good thing to do. But once this kid, you can see that you, you can see that he was lying. His eyes, he's not looking at you, and we were happy that he was lying. It's just some people just never understand why we think that way. But you know, it's a great thing for this kid to learn how to lie, and. Yeah, that was, I don't know, we're weird. Um, <laughs> well, that's that's one of the things I love about what we do, though, is that we're we're not teach we're teaching people what to do, what they need to do to function, not to pass tests. So you know, we teach kids to refuse. We teach them to say, "No, I'm not getting in your car with you." We teach them to say, "Leave me alone." We teach them when when we're teaching them to respond to questions or greetings, we're teaching them to do it in a way that's going to make them sound like other kids, not like little miniature adults. And the social validity piece of ABA, I think, is so important and, and so um, interesting to me, like so much more than in traditional education where you're teaching kids what's in the book because they need to know it, because they need to pass the test, because the school district needs to keep its funding. So... Um talking about this so thinking what is the one thing that you think is the most important for a BCBA to learn and master how to I, I know my answer I'm just thinking of the best way to say it um, how to communicate with other people not and not I don't mean the clients I mean the people in the clients life so how to communicate with the parents, how to communicate with the teachers, how to respectfully and diplomatically but clearly show them what they're doing wrong and how to do it better. And I think this goes back to the question that you asked before about regrets or, or mistakes. Um, I think that if you don't do it well, if you don't do it with sensitivity and respect, it comes across really, really bad and people shut down and they don't listen to you and they don't take your advice. So you're, you're not helping anybody. So I know with teachers, I, I did a, for several years, I did school consultation on an extremely big scale and I could see dozens of teachers within a week. And initially I was constantly struggling with them. And I realized it's because I'm walking into their house and telling them that their decorating isn't good, that they don't know how to cook, that they're not raising their children right. Like, that's what it felt like to them. So I had to adapt myself to remembering that when you go into a teacher's classroom, they're doing what they're doing because they feel it's right, because they think it's helping their kids, because it's what they've been taught to do, and maybe because it's what they've been doing for years. And there, you have to approach that in such a way that you're not 
going to turn them off. And um, so there's the obvious things like sandwiching your criticism between praise. So mm-hmm. start by telling them everything they're doing right, which is great. And then you can start to point out where the problems might be. But I think there's even that has to be undertaken very carefully. And there's a very fine line between being honest and being brutally honest (laughs) or being diplomatic and honest and, you know, tap dancing around the point. And, and you need to find that middle ground. And what complicates it even more is that everybody's different. So there were some teachers who just wanted me to get to the point and it was just, they would say, tell me what I'm doing wrong. I, 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 and, these were the people who were very confident. I've been teaching for 30 years. I know a lot of what I do is right. So the so there's those teachers who are very uh, um, confident and, and know that, that, that they do most things right, but there's something that's, that's wrong. And just tell me what it is. Tell me how to fix it and let me move on. But then there would also be teachers who were much more defensive and had to be approached carefully. And the same thing with parents. You know, I I work with a parent right now who is another one of my heroes. She works extremely hard with her child. She, she, you know, has done tremendous things with him. Um, And she just wants to know what to do. Just, and she'll say, tell me what we're doing wrong here. You're not going to hurt my feelings. It's more important that I know what he needs and that I do it than that. You know, you spare my feelings. And then there's other parents who feel that they, you know, who are parents and they're good parents and they love their children and they're acting out of love. And you need to be, you know, careful when you're telling them that maybe the things that they're doing out of love are not, are good to their, it's good to the child, it's not good for the child. So I think that's that. That's what a BCBA, if a BCBA doesn't have those skills, I think, all of the rest of the things that you have, all of the other knowledge that you have is really not too helpful unless you're just working with rats and pigeons. Wow. That's something you don't learn every day. You don't learn it from the book. So people remember. And yes, I totally learn a lot here. I hope you know whoever listens to this would learn a lot too. And... I also want to ask you, so what do you think is the biggest misunderstanding concept uh, of ABA? For um, people who are studying it? or For, for people, or just general, it? outside. Yeah. General, yes, ma'am. The term negative reinforcement is consistently misunderstood and mistaken for punishment. Um, and I think that's related to a general misunderstanding that behavior analysts only um, deal with problem behavior, that they don't teach new skills, and that they basically deal with problem behavior by punishing the behavior. So, um, you know, I think that we still suffer from the uh, sins of the past and, you know, the misuses, the uh, very poorly done what at the time was called behavior modification um, that's very different from what we do now with that we're still associated with. So I, I've done some, some blogging and stuff and I had written a piece about um, helping kids to meet their potential and, and finding their strengths. It, was ex- it couldn't have been a more positive piece. And somebody commented on it that... Um, get out of the dark ages, would you punish a child with diabetes for having low blood sugar? Mm-hmm. It, it couldn't have been further from what I was saying, but because it was ABA, that was the, that, that was just the assumption that was made. So I think we still, we still have um, that hanging over our heads. I'll have to ask you for that link and share with, share it with everyone. So it's important. And okay, you talk about reading. I think you told me that you like to read a lot. So what is your must-have ABA book? Must-have ABA book. Um, 
I would say the for the clinician and the, the books that I relied on a lot as an early behavior analyst and when I was really working directly with um, clients were Richard Fox's two books, Increasing Behavior of People with Developmental Disabilities and Decreasing Behavior of People with Developmental Disabilities. Um, they were both, you know, very user-friendly in the moment. Like when I, when I was having a problem or I wanted to check on a procedure, I could just go to those books and get the, the quick and simple answer. Um, in terms of for students, you know, for people who are preparing for the BCBA exam or who need more of the backgrounds and the in-depth stuff, I don't think anything compares to Cooper, Heron, and Eward. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's familiarity. That's the book that I learned in in graduate school. Um, it's the book my students use, and I still go back to it when I have a question about something when one of those little uh, things that you don't use all the time, you know, a schedule of reinforcement or something comes up, that's that's where I go and look. So probably not the most creative answer, but um, but those are, I think they're the basics. I think they're important. I also think the Bailey and Birch books are really important. Um, the ethics book is great. Definitely, you know, is so much more digestible than just trying to read the ethical guidelines by themselves. Uh, and the other book is the 25 Essential Skills for Behavior Analysts that I do make sure that my students get in one of their classes because that does go into some of what I was talking about before with interacting with people and, you know, how to be a great behavior analyst by not only knowing what you're doing, but communicating it well to other people. Hmm. I need to check out those books. Um, well, the white book I do have because I sleep with it. There's the <laughs> um, So, well, we are almost done with less power through. So what do you think, what is your biggest concern in the field? It just, this your personal opinion. It doesn't have to, I don't want to, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but just give us something that you think is concern for us right now well i think it's it's a concern right now but i think it's been one that's been ongoing um of people not really being well prepared to do this work and doing it um the certification and and especially the fact that now it's national and it's a board certification um goes a long way, I think, towards protecting against that. But I think uh, the BCBA or the BACB is doing a great job of tightening up the requirements and making it more and more difficult to become a BCBA. And I think that's important because you want a credentialed professional to be somebody who's, who's truly an expert. Um, but in order to get a critical mass of behavior analysts, those requirements were not so tight all along. So I think we do have people out there who maybe, um, you know, would not be, would not meet the certification requirements as they stand now and maybe should not have been certified and out there representing us. And that scares me because that's how we continue to have problems with public perceptions of what we do. When you have somebody who got certified, um, so when you have somebody who was certified at a time when it was it was you know the requirements were not as strict, um, they could be practicing in a way that's not as consistent with what behavior analysts are supposed to be doing. Um, I I know that there have been people who've really rubber stamped supervision for other people, which is not so great, and I'm really glad that the supervision requirements are getting tightened up and that supervisors will have to be trained and accountable. Just because you got a BCBA doesn't mean that you have the skills to supervise other people, so that's a really good thing. I know the test has gotten a lot harder, and I, I feel bad for people, but I also think that 
the work that we do is that important that you need to be great at it, not just good, before you go out there and start changing people's lives. I agree. And what is the best advice you have received about our line of work, our profession? Oh, that is an interesting question. Uh, I would say that what comes to mind first, I don't know if this is the best, but this is the first thing that comes to mind, is documenting everything that you're doing. Of course, we take data, but we don't always, or I didn't always, it didn't come naturally to me to document the suggestions that I was making to people or the, the way that I was implementing trainings or plans. And once I developed the practice of doing that, I think it helped my consultation a lot and it helped the people I was working with a lot. So I became, I began to, when I was consulting in schools, leaving teachers copies of my notes every day. So I would go and then I developed a form that was very specific for this purpose. And I would, I would write, as we were talking, I would write notes and, and I would take notes as I was observing. And then I would write down my suggestions and, I would do that anyway because that's the way I, I guess, process and, and think about things. Um, but then I would go and copy, physically copy the paper, like run it through the copy machine and leave it for them. And it was so helpful because the next time I would visit, I wouldn't have to try to remember what we talked about or what I suggested. And they had it in front of them. So... After I was gone, if there was a question or, you know, something, they could look back at it. Uh, they, it was almost like letting them see my thought process, which I think was really helpful for explaining why, you know, I'm suggesting that you do something or not do something. And then, of course, there was the um, proverbial cover your ass aspect of it that, if, you know, in two months, child is still having self-injury and I've done all these assessments and I've written plans and I've made suggestions and I've documented every time I visit the teacher that they're not doing what I've asked them to do, then I could always go back to the administrator and say, I don't think I'm being effective in this situation and I don't think it's my lack of behavior analysis. I think it's because the teacher's not being compliant. And at least there was that. Um, that level of course you know I, I have to be I have to be me and say if I couldn't get the teacher to do what I wanted them to do then probably there was something wrong with the way I was presenting it or the way the, the environment wasn't supporting it because uh, even you know just as much as the pigeon is always right the teacher is always right I guess so um, there's that piece of it but I as a consultant you don't have the access to the environmental variables to um, help support maybe the teachers in the way that they need to be supported to do what needs to be done to support the students. So anyway, that's the long and windy answer to the question. And I think um, in terms of good advice, I would say, I would say keep good records, document, um, and share your records. Uh, that, that's a big piece of it. Don't walk into someone's classroom or house um, or even when you're supervising another, somebody who wants to become a BCBA and take notes or, or take in information and not let them know what you're thinking about it. I think that's, that sets up a very difficult relationship. So I think the more open and honest you are um, while being respectful and, and diplomatic too um, I think the, the better you're, you can address those things with people another piece of advice that you know the books don't teach you so listen up and we I think we're going a little over we got two little questions do you think we can power you through or yeah yeah that's fine okay I'm going to throw you a curveball um Imagine you wake up tomorrow and all of your client population is gone, but you still have all your knowledge in ABA. What would you do? I would work with animals. That would be my, my um, I think that would be like a dream come true. I would, 
I had done uh, in graduate school, I had the opportunity to work with some rescue dogs and um, I loved that work and I would love to work with animals that are injured or um, orphaned, you know, and could be rehabilitated and returned to their natural habitat or animals that have been in captivity and get them to uh, engage in their natural behavior patterns again so that they could live the way they're supposed to live, uh, to work with animals that, um, like dogs or, or other animals as service animals, training them to help people with disabilities or to, um, you know, search and rescue, stuff like that. I would just adore being able to do any of that. I didn't pursue it as a career because I think it's very important, but I think that helping people on the autism spectrum has to take priority and you know, for me at this time, that's where my, that's where I needed more. I mean, there are lots of people who work with animals and do it really, really well and don't have to have um, the level of training that I have, but that's, that to me sounds like the job I would love to get up every day and do. Um, any last piece of advice and how can we find you? Oh, I am uh, easily found by email. Or Facebook, that's how I find her. Facebook. Facebook is fine. Um, you can Google me and I pop up. It's not a common name. So um, if you Google me, you'll find me. Uh, and last piece of advice, um, you know, I, this is, I'm teaching ethics right now. We're, we're um, about three weeks into the fall semester and it's a lot of the basic ethical guidelines and principles, you know, and as we progress into the semester, we get into the specifics, the way the ethical principles are applied to different situations like research or um, supervision or, you know, um, any one of a number of things. Uh, but at this point in the semester, we're talking about them very generally. And one of the things that my students have pointed out and that they, they tend to point out in this course is that this is all stuff that we should be doing all the time anyway. And I, I really like that people recognize that. It makes me feel good about the way they see their responsibility to themselves and other people. And I try to really encourage that and say ethics doesn't have to be hard. You know, in order to understand the ethics that you're expected to abide by as a behavior analyst, you don't have to memorize the guidelines and you don't have to memorize the Bailey and Birch book. You just have to treat people well. Treat them the way you would want to be treated and then you won't have a problem. And so I guess that would that would probably be my advice. If you are comfortable with what you're doing, if it makes sense to you and if it's the way you would want to be treated or you would want your loved one to be treated, then you're probably doing not only you know a good job, but you're doing it ethically. And that's all that we can try to do. Wow. So... ABA is love and respect. <laughs> well, it's giving people, yeah, I, I, I definitely think so because I think it's it's giving people choices. Um, you know, when you teach somebody a skill, you give them a choice of, of being able to, to use that skill, whereas they, they don't have that choice if you haven't taught it. And um, thinking about the way that we implement things and make decisions for people, um, doing it from a place of, genuinely, you know, wanting to help them, but also really thinking about it from their point of view, I think is, is, is important. And I think most people come at it that way. They're people who go into this field, want to help other people. That's, that's their value. That's where they come from. So stay true to that. And, and I think that's, um, that's what makes good behavior. Well, that's all. Thank you so much, Dr. Renegi. Did I say right? Yes, you did. Thank yes. you. Yes. Yes, thank you so, so much. And I'll put all these together. And uh, thank you so much for getting on. And let me... I just want to mention that I mess up um, the Sage Colleges, not Sage College, 
and I'll put some show notes on. I'll make it easy, and uh, this is my very first recording. So please give me a break and give me any ideas, uh, suggestions on how to improve this. Thank you so much, and that's all. Take care. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. New York checked.